Hey there, everybody. It's uh, your pal, Tim, and uh, welcome to Good Seats uh, Still Available. We have uh, altered uh, the uh, format this week uh, to uh, bring to you a, a, a sadly, a special uh, commemorative episode uh, to uh, reflect on the life uh, of uh, one of the pioneers, frankly, of this uh, little genre that we carved out for ourselves over the years in the realm of forgotten sports and teams and leagues no longer with us. Uh, and that is the passing, uh, sadly, of Dennis Murphy, uh, two-time former guest here on this show, and uh, absolutely uh, one of the very few folks in the pantheon uh, of challenger leagues and um, innovators uh, in the realm of professional sports. Um, uh, as you may know from our previous episodes, uh, in particular, episode number 129, uh, where we talk about the old American Basketball Association, Dennis Murphy was the co-founder of that uh, back in the late 60s. So some great conversations we had not only with him, but some other folks around the old ABA, uh, Pat Boone, for example, in the uh, Oakland Oaks and that kind of stuff. So look up that episode as well. Uh, and uh, again, on episode number 179, uh, we had a, a shorter uh, conversation, but we uh, started to scratch the surface a little bit about the World Hockey Association, another league uh, that Dennis Murphy co-founded. I mean, to say that this uh, this gentleman was um, full of, of energy and entrepreneurialism as it uh, affected the realm of pro sports is an understatement, maybe perhaps matched only by his uh, uh, longtime and often colleague, Gary Davidson, who was uh, uh, still with us and hopefully will be part of our, our conversations coming up sooner rather than later. Uh, but uh, Dennis Murphy was um, a renaissance man in many, in many respects. Uh, he passed away on July 15th, uh, just this as we're recording this this past Thursday, uh, and lived to the ripe old age, God bless, of 94. Uh, he moved to California after having been born in Shanghai, China, uh, having served at the U.S. Army in, in World War II. Uh, went to USC, majored in economics. Uh, we know that uh, he was very much a diehard USC Trojans uh, sports fan, uh, very well involved with the Alumni Association and all that kind of stuff. But he's an innovator and entrepreneur uh, that he's probably most best known for. Uh, in his uh, professional sports endeavors. As mentioned, he co-founded the American Basketball Association back in 1967. Uh, he co-founded uh, with Gary Davidson and some others the World Hockey Association in 1972. Uh, he co-founded, as uh, we've uh, hinted at uh, in previous conversations, and hopefully with a few others to come, the World Team Tennis Group with Billie Jean King and and, uh, and her uh, then-husband at the time in 1972, uh, excuse me, 1974, World Team Tennis and also co-founded Roller Hockey International. Yeah, 1993, uh, a couple of decades after uh, his uh, uh, excursions in the uh, in the 70s. Uh, our great conversation with uh, Richard Neil Graham uh, went into uh, great depth around that, and hopefully a conversation to come uh, with uh, Jeannie Buss, uh, who most know uh, before sort of uh, ascending the mantle of uh, NBA world champion and her family, uh, uh, exploits uh, kind of got her start. It cut her teeth, if you will, uh, with uh, the team in Los Angeles at the time with Roller Hockey International, arguably uh, sort of a, an unsung, if you will, co-founder, at least foundational uh, uh, participant uh, in that league uh, in the 1990s. Regardless, it's safe to say that uh, Dennis Murphy is uh, one of the um, uh, most notable entrepreneurs uh, and challengers, if you will, in modern day professional sports. Uh, you could make the argument, perhaps with uh, alongside uh, Gary Davidson, Dennis Murphy uh, is responsible for many, many, many innovations, both large and small, uh, that live on, that exist today, 
uh, in professional sports that, uh, frankly, without uh, his uh, tinkering, his uh, chutzpah, uh, his ability to sell uh, uh, franchises and and the big, bold ideas about uh, uh, what could be done in, in various pro sports that uh, ultimately uh, spun out of his head, the, uh, the world is a um, lesser place uh, now missing uh, the great Dennis Murphy. So uh, without any further ado, we uh, offer to you um, a look back to uh, what we're going to do is condense two versions of previous conversations that we had with Dennis. Our episode number 129, about uh, the uh, mostly about the American Basketball Association uh, from uh, 2019, and our episode number 179, uh, our uh, smaller uh, but uh, concentrated uh, conversation around the World Hockey Association. Uh, please enjoy these previous conversations with the late, great, and already missed Dennis Murphy. And uh, please uh, enjoy, and uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Glorified street ball. The red, white, and blue ball was viewed as a joke. The three-point shot was viewed as a gimmick. We were free and wild, and the times were free and wild. We was entertaining. I mean, that was my style of play, play round ball. It's just a good feeling. You just open up and let your creative juices flow. Whatever was outrageous anywhere else, it was that much more outrageous in the ABA because, what the hell, we didn't have anything to lose. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh my goodness. Well, this is an episode we have been waiting for some time to get on the air, and we are happy to drop it this week. Hello again, everyone. My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you tremendously for finding us out there in podcast land. We appreciate it. And uh, we uh, hope we delight you this week uh, in an extraordinarily special way. We uh, present to you this week an episode uh, that has been uh, many months in the making and uh, is frankly the beginning of what we hope is a multi-episode journey. And it is uh, uh, with great uh, delight and uh, distinction uh, that we're able to bring you finally a conversation uh, with perhaps one of the uh, very shortlisted group of men, uh, people, figures, uh, heroes, if you will, of our little genre of forgotten sports. His name is Dennis Murphy. And uh, if you don't know who he is, in in short order, uh, this is uh, perhaps the most uh, quintessential entrepreneur in uh, in modern professional sports uh, history. The man who either single-handedly or amongst a small group of men led efforts uh, to create many challenger leagues that uh, redefined uh, the shape and the scope uh, and the size and the future, if you will, of professional sports in this country. Dennis Murphy is uh, in the pantheon, the uh, Mount Rushmore of not only forgotten sports teams and leagues, but frankly, of professional sports generally. We uh, heard a little bit of uh, of some of the uh, shenanigans that he helped uh, usher in uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s with the American Basketball Association, the uh, the, the challenger, if you will, the butt kicker to the NBA, the staid and relatively uh, colorless, in many respects, National Basketball Association. Uh, and that was just the first of many uh, professional uh, challenger league adventures for uh, this one, Dennis Murphy. 
uh, who we are uh, honored to have a conversation with. And by the way, we are dropping this episode around, uh, let's see, uh, the early part of September of this year. This will be, uh, as of September 4th, 2019, Dennis Murphy's 93rd birthday. Uh, God bless. You will hear, uh, though, uh, despite the uh, the age uh, in the voice, uh, amazing recollections and intrigue around uh, the formation of, uh, in our first conversation with Dennis, uh, the old American Basketball Association. And, and, and the, during the course of this conversation, we'll also get into the beginnings of another league that he started right after that, the World Hockey Association, both leagues that we've talked about in previous episodes with previous guests, uh, but without which or without whom this conversation or Dennis Murphy, his efforts, uh, those two leagues and others such as Roller Hockey International and uh, elements of World Team Tennis and the World Football League, uh, all of those and others, uh, Dennis Murphy was either solely or largely responsible uh, for starting. And we cannot wait to get this conversation to you. Uh, our conversation uh, with the great Dennis Murphy coming up in just a few moments of any of the shows that we've delivered to you over these two and a half years. Uh, this one is uh, one for the uh, the ages, and we encourage you to uh, sit back and enjoy it in just a few moments. Of course, uh, we want to encourage you to celebrate this first of hopefully a few episodes with the great Dennis Murphy uh, by going to many of our sponsors this week, why don't you, uh, to celebrate, uh, in this case, uh, both the, uh, the wonders that were the ABA and the WHA. In no particular order, here are the places you need to go. How about OldSchoolShirts.com? Of course, you can use the promo code there, OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your great purchases. You're going to find tremendous shirts from both the World Hockey Association and the American Basketball Association. Check them out, OldSchoolShirts.com. Check out the colors, check out the logos. You'll even find some Roller Hockey International shirts there and use that promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Once you're done there, hop on over to 503 Sports. That's 503-sports.com. Well, not only are you going to find T-shirts from the WHA and the American Basketball Association, but you will also find jerseys that have been handcrafted and recreated from both of those leagues. You're going to find some caps there too, some really smart looking caps. Again, from both the leagues uh, of Dennis Murphy's uh, imagination, the WHA and the ABA. And of course, we've got a promo code for you there at 503sports. Again, 503-sports.com. Use the promo code SEATS and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. Uh, so we thank our friends at 503 Sports. And once you're done there, you want to dial your web browser over to streakersports.com and hit their defunct uh, leagues section under their special collections tab. And in the defunct leagues, you will find, yes, the WHA and yes, the ABA, but you'll also find a bunch of other leagues that uh, Dennis was part of, including Roller Hockey International. They are all there for you at streakersports.com. And uh, not only will you find uh, uh, you'll find all the great shirts, it's probably the most comprehensive uh, of all the uh, the sites out there. And you're going to be able to find uh, wonderful stuff there and use a promo code there, too. And that's good seats. Good seats. The uh, promo code at streakersports.com. Again, look at the uh, the defunct league section under ABA and the WHA. And you're going to find great stuff there at streakersports.com. So check them all out. Well, yeah, that's 503-sports.com. Promo code seats. OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS, 
and streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS. Pick one, pick them all. They're all there for you. The American Basketball Association, the World Hockey Association, two of the many leagues that our guest this week, Dennis Murphy, had a distinct hand in founding. And here is our conversation with the great Dennis Murphy as we regale in all kinds of memories about both of those leagues and then some. Please sit back and enjoy. We focus on this show on on various teams and leagues that are are no longer with us for whatever reasons. And yeah, like forever. Heaven's sakes, you guys had one of the greatest uh, hockey. Well, he's one of the greatest hockey players of all time, and Bobby Hall. And he was the one who helped make the World Hockey Association. Well, sure, but let's start actually with basketball because actually, you know what? I actually want to start even before the ABA. I I want to know how you got involved in being basically the largest and biggest challenger uh, guy to all kinds of professional sports in the first place. How did you even get to becoming starting this ABA thing? How did what was your background that got you interested in challenging the establishment of sports? Well, the establishment of sports. I was born in Shanghai, China. And before World War II, my family came back to the United States. My dad was with the Standard Oil Company. And so we came back to the United States. And we landed in West Los Angeles, where I went to high school. And then in high school, I went from high school to... Uh, to the service, and when I got out of the military, uh, I decided, you know, to go to the University of Southern California, and that's where I met my wife and had a lot of wonderful years at, at USC, and, and at that time, I met a guy by the name of Jim Hardy, who was the quarterback on our football team, and uh, Jim... Jim became the Coliseum manager. Well, I went on and got called back in Korean War. And after the Korean War, I came back to California. And at that particular time, I bought a home in Buena Park, California, and became its mayor. And while I was mayor, I got to know the Dots family and and uh, all a lot of nice people. And so the American Football League and was run by a guy by the name of Al Davis, who you, I'm sure, know very well. And Al Davis wanted to put a team in Orange County. So he called Jim Hardy and asked Jim if he knew anybody in Orange County that could do that. And so... Jim called me, and I said, yeah, I'll try. So what we did is we got the Dots family involved, and we put a doubleheader football game, a high school game, and then a pro game at the Anaheim Stadium. And we got 47,000 people at the game, so we were all excited about the fact that we were going to maybe get a football team in Orange County. Unfortunately for us, the two leagues merged, 
Al Davis and 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 the National Football League got together and and so we were down the tubes and that. But the, the Dodge family said, "Hey, let's try to see if we can do something else." And so that's when we went and started the American Basketball Association. First thing I did was get a hold of Bill Sharman, who at one time was a very great, well, he's on the Hall of Fame at, at USC, and he he gave us a lot of a good good ideas. And one of the ideas he thought might be a good one that, that would help us was the three-point play. So between him and I, we got the votes to go for the three-point play, and so that's how the three-point play started. And so that was basically the way we started the ABA. So, so Dennis, why basketball then? After your football uh, experiences and in, in, in Orange County with a potential for a football team and, and, and all that, why why did you decide or why did you your your colleagues think about basketball being kind of the thing to pursue versus say football or some other sport? Well, they 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 you know they they asked me what I thought we should do go into basketball or hockey and I didn't know very much about hockey at the time so I said basketball was was the place to be and of course having Bill Sharman was certainly helpful you know so what do, what goes in then to the thinking about how to put a league together uh where do you start right so you've got the idea for basketball uh clearly Orange County a growing area that 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 could support probably a lot of different pro sports, right? So probably going to be part of it. How do you go about uh, hustling, I guess, or or putting together the, the the people and the money maybe to even take this from an idea to an actuality? Well, the money part was no problem because, of course, that's very farm people are very very wealthy, and the other people that I put together with. Dots Ferry Farmers were equally as well wealthy, so we didn't have any problem with the money. But the big problem was, as you said, was to get the people. So what happened is they just said, well, let's let's start moving around. And all the guys that were involved with us in the beginning gave us the list of names, and, and so we started traveling a lot. Matter of fact, I was on an airplane, I would say, 90% of the time. And we we traveled a lot, met a lot of nice people that eventually joined, joined us in, in the basketball world. It seems to me that the NBA at the time was especially vulnerable to a challenge because it was probably the youngest of the major pro leagues and... I, it, it seems to me also that the, the the style of play was also a little, shall we say, conservative and, and classic, and maybe even financially the NBA wasn't all that strong either. Was that did that enter into your thinking too? Not not really, because at that particular time we thought the NBA was very very strong, and they were. There were only six teams in the NBA at the time, and so they decided to. To stick with the six because they were all doing very well, and uh, 
because we came on the scene, they also became involved in expanding. So, because they wanted to try to stop us, Red Arback was the leader in the group, and Red was very intelligent and a very nice guy. And as time went on, we got to be friends, and Red was very active in, in promoting, of course, basketball. How did you uh, how did you convince people to become owners? Uh, as you know, uh, we had Pat Boone on uh, a number of months ago, uh, and he uh, specifically says that you were the reason that he uh, became convinced that uh, he should be an owner in this fledgling American Basketball Association. How did you get people like Pat Boone and others to cough up the money to join you in this uh, in this interesting uh, pursuit? Well, I just told him that I thought. It was time for basketball expand from the six teams that the NBA had, and and I thought that this was the time to do it. And so they they joined me, and and we moved ahead. And I was so lucky to have such great owners like Pat Boone, and uh, it was just one of those things that just developed. You know, Pat was involved with with us and he owned the Oakland team in, in our league and he was just a very 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 nice person and he played a lot of basketball himself over his over his high school and college time and and I I got to know him very very well and Pat is one of the nicest people you'd ever meet in this world how did you uh, go about besides the money and the owners uh, getting the players, uh, and, and George Mikan at that matter, right? George Mikan was your first commissioner, correct? That is absolutely correct. Well, my next-door neighbor, you know, it's funny how things work out in life. My next-door neighbor was a friend of George Mikan, and he suggested George Mikan. And so call, he called George, and George at that time was through his basketball, you know, days and as far as uh, players concerned. So when I went back to see him, we got along just terrifically. And and uh, George was a wonderful guy and had a lot of interest, of course, in basketball because he was at that time Mr. Basketball. So he got involved and we we there we went from there. But it was because of my neighbor, and that's you know that's one of those things that happen in life. You just never know what happens, you know. And it just so happened that he was one of my neighbors, and he knew George. So it was it was one of those things that happened that makes this world go around, I guess. <laughs> well, he certainly he certainly gave some instant credibility to what you were putting together. I'm curious, did he was he the one responsible or or for that the league came to uh, to bring the three point play the three point shot the uh the shot clock the uh, the the red white and blue ball maybe we get back to that in a second but basketball wise how did you guys decide to to come up with some of these more innovative rules well i had two very good partners in uh, Gary Davidson and and Don Reagan and they were both UCLA guys, and we used to have a lot of fun between UCLA and SC, and and we they became my partners. 
they were both lawyers, young lawyers from UCLA of all places. <laughs> we we had a lot of fun on that. But they they and us and and myself and were basically we we came up with the rules and all that stuff together with with uh, Bill Sharman. George actually just took over the administrative part of the league and did a wonderful, wonderful job. When you uh, finally uh, took the court, uh, when did you kind of know that you had something here? The cities, for example. Like, how did you go about choosing the cities? When I was doing my traveling, I I used to go all the first place I'd go to in any, any city that I didn't know anything about. I, I'd go see the Chamber of Commerce and talk to the to the guys who ran the Chamber of Commerce and. And that's basically the way I I met some of the people that I did. And from that, was the way we got the thing started. How much were you asking for a franchise to get things going? Do you remember how much was the cost of entry? You know what? That, that's $25,000. But $25,000 was a lot of money at that time, but... Can you imagine twenty five thousand when they're getting billions for the teams today? It's amazing. But so was that relatively easy? I mean, sure, twenty five thousand was was certainly a sum then. Uh, but was it relatively easy to get people to do that? I suspect it wasn't all that hard, uh, or or was it? Uh, because this was such a brand. Well, every city that I would go to, you know, I talked to the Chamber of Commerce guys and. And they would give me the guys who they thought, who they thought, not who I thought, but who they thought would would you know be involved with and be happy to be involved with a with a sports team for their city. So that's basically the way it worked out. And the three of us, Gary and Don and myself, we we kind of Gary was the front guy, Don was the lawyer. And I was the organizer. So basically, I did a lot of traveling at that time. Matter of fact, I didn't see my wife for about, oh, very few times during the, during that period because I was doing a lot of traveling. And, and so basically that's what it, what, what it came down to. Was there, was there a type? Of, of owner or prospective owner? Was there like a profile of a person, like a, where they got their money or they were sports fans or uh, I'm just curious, their business uh, dealings, uh, real estate? Uh, was there any sort of profile or obvious candidate that you would typically look for to get somebody involved? No, basically, I let, let, to be honest, I let the Chamber of Commerce guys give me the the questions that you asked, like who's interested in sports and who had the money to, to support a team and all that stuff. I let let the Chamber of Commerce guys give me the information because they knew a lot more about those people than I, I did, certainly. And, and on a whole, they did a pretty darn good job. So when you're starting, when this is launching uh, in, in the late 60s, so you've got a, a pretty good uh, geographical representation uh, a few cities with current NBA teams and a whole bunch without them. So give us an idea of those first couple of weeks when when the games actually started. 
when did you know that uh, that you were onto something and then that maybe this ABA thing was going to really resonate with fans and, and the players? Well, basically, as an organizer, I was mostly involved in getting out and, and meeting all these fine people. And, and the way it worked out was their interest in, in in basketball sometimes also showed some interest in some other sport as well. Or it, maybe they, in their cases, they thought more of some other sport rather than basketball. Like in, in Chicago's case, we had the Kaisers who were involved with a, with with our basketball with our hockey teams so it, it was through the contacts that we had in the basketball that led us to to decide after the basketball i i be being the organizer after i organized the league i mean i was i was you know not doing very much at that time so because of that fact and I moved into these other sports and met people like the Kaisers and, and uh, Bobby Hall and all these wonderful people that helped us start the World Hockey Association. Okay, I, I want to get to the WHA in a minute, but let me I just ask you a couple more quickies on, on the ABA, if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead. So tell me how you and 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 your colleagues got the players to play right because obviously without quality product on the court uh you're well, not Tim, going very far right at, at that time the nba had only six teams when we first started and they were paying the guys very very small uh, limited dollars and because we came on the scene they had to increase their prices and we were able to get some players to come over to, with us because of the fact that they weren't getting very much money in the NBA at that time. And we helped, I think, improve the, the players a lot as far as money and stuff and for families and all that kind of things. So I think in that regards is the way we we're able to to make our strides with the players. So the, you saw this. This is the, to them. This was more of a an expansion of job opportunities for quality players that arguably could populate many more teams than the NBA had at the time. Oh, absolutely. That was that was basically the the reason. You know, because they were getting sometimes like for like ten thousand or. You know, when they were playing before good crowds and everything, and the owners of the NBA at that, that time were making a lot of money. And so, of course, when we came on the scene, it, it you know, it changed that to a, because they the players had another place to go, you know. Yeah, well, the, it seemed like the NBA was at least, in a, in a slow manner, was at least starting to expand a bit, right? I think in 1968... They had gone up to actually to 14 teams by then, right? So Chicago, relatively new, Seattle, uh, the San Diego Rockets, Milwaukee, et cetera, right? So it's clear that they knew they were they needed to do something. But your arrival, right, indeed, not only it, it certainly became a threat to the NBA and it certainly expanded things rather quickly. So let, let me ask you this specific question. How much 
of the ABA model, at least in the early days, was also about stealing maybe some talent from the NBA to legitimize the ABA in the early days. Oh, that was very, very important to us. Getting George Mikan, of course, was was a very big attribute because he was very, very respected by everybody in, in, in basketball, not only as a player, but as a person. He made a big difference in, in the way we did things, and he was the one that helped us make the thing happen. Yeah, it seems that, um, well, okay, so like the Rick Barry situation, right, in Oakland, right, where, where, where Pat, you well, know. Rick Barry, Rick Barry was son of, uh, of a wonderful person, and because that person that he was, his father-in-law, was very active in, in, in sports in his community, and because of that, we were able to get Rick Berry to join our league when Pat Boone came in. He, he said, if Pat meets my financial re- requirements, he says, I'll make the move. So that's what happened. Yeah, and it, it's clear. I mean, you know, having him, but being prevented to play him until the second season, right? That obviously, but but the fact that he was in process at least and then ultimately jumped, I mean, I think people like Barry and, and a handful of others, right, really, you know, almost gave the, the league overnight credibility, uh, even though not all the teams uh, would benefit, right? I, I I'm, Let me ask you this. Do, the, the, the financing of some of these expensive NBA players, say like a Rick Barry, right, was that all on the shoulders of the individual owner or was there a bit of, I don't know, league collectivism NBA, it was mostly on the owner. In some of the other leagues, as we started, uh, you're right. It was a, a collective deal, but in the ABA, it was mostly on the owners. Interesting. And and so as the league got going then, um, what did you sort of see and feel that first sort of year or two? Clearly, there was some real uh, breakthrough and some real interest and fan interest but clearly, there was also some shaky situations too, right? Not so stable, uh, imbalance, that kind of stuff. What was your takeaway? Well, because from the because first we did we did the thing in a short time, and because we did in some cases, uh, Chamber of Commerce gave us the wrong guy. Maybe in the city, you know, he got involved and found out that there wasn't that much interest, and so he gave up his team and. So that's why we moved around a lot because a lot of the owners that we originally picked it were were not you know they weren't the strong basketball fans and stuff and they didn't want to keep on losing money because both of our teams lost money the first few years but they because of that reason we had a lot of movement a lot of teams moved from one city to another you know and that was that was a, a a point of contention, but we were able, and thank goodness we did. We survived it. So, would you say there was some naivete or uh, 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 on some of the owners in terms? I mean, the franchise fee relatively low, 
but it almost feels like they might have been a little naive as to how much they needed to actually have in the team during the actual running of the team beyond that. Oh, absolutely. That's true. What you just said was was one of our biggest problems. How did you overcome that? Was it simply a, we need to find a new owner and hence a lot of the movement or? Well, we, we, had a, we just had, a, you know, the usual stuff that happens in all kinds of businesses. Some make it and some don't. And that's exactly what happened in basketball. We'll be back with our conversation in just a moment. But first, a message from our friends at Warby Parker. Uh, I must tell you, friends, I cannot stand the process of getting eyeglasses. Uh, It's something that I've uh, luckily avoided for most of my adult life, but it's unavoidable now. And the process of going into a store, uh, meeting an optician, trying on frames, not knowing what the hell I'm doing uh, and having no fashion sense whatsoever. All of the whole process, completely intimidating. And that's why I was attracted to Warby Parker in the first place. And uh, you uh, can uh, do what I did and avoid the hassles uh, and the embarrassment and just the sheer frustration of the process by trying on the frames at home. All you got to do is go to warbyparker.com slash good seats and order your free home try on package. Uh, what do you get? You get five pair of glasses, five pairs of glasses, I think is the appropriate uh, English way to say that. And you get to try them on for five days with uh, for free with no obligation. And you try them on for your friends, your family, your loved ones, whomever, and see if they like uh, what you think you might like. Uh, obviously, you can you can see what kind of frames you like by going online first, by uh, answering a few questions uh, and choosing some of the frames you think you might uh, enjoy the most. Uh, they come to you in a uh, prepaid and uh, uh, return shipping uh, situation there. You try them on, and I will tell you, uh, it worked well for me. I tried on five pair at home with my uh, my wife and two daughters. The four first ones I tried on, they could not stand. I thought the first two or three actually looked pretty darn good, but they said no, and they went. That fifth pair, however, oh boy, seems like I hit the uh, the jackpot, and that's the one we went with, and we sent it back in with my prescription, and voila, about a week later, I got great sun uh, sunglasses. Well, that's next, but uh, I got great eyeglasses from Warby Parker, and the price, you can't beat it. There's no middleman, shall we say. Great frames, uh, great styles, and the process could not be easier. Again, for you, our listeners, you can do the same thing. Head over to warbyparker.com slash good seats. Take the quiz. Get your five iframe glasses situation set up for you. Have them set to you and uh, enjoy the process as I did. Fear no more uh, the process of getting great prescription glasses. WarbyParker.com slash good seats. Try them out. You will love them as I have and still do. All right, let's go back to our conversation. Here it comes. How did you go about the arenas and how did your ownership go after the arenas? Because I got to think that some of these buildings were a little leery or a little worried about uh, what this was going to be or maybe the, the, whether it was going to survive at all. Whether it Was the arena thing a problem and or uh, relatively easy? Well, no, they, 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 most of the arenas made us put up a strong bond or or a, a strong amount of money for their seasons because, as you said, they didn't want to get involved and, and lose any money on it. So 
we had to come up with some bonds and we had to come up with some serious money in some cases. And how about uh, media and television? I mean, obviously not as important or, or as obvious as today, right? But uh, the league really never had uh, anything of a national television contract or was media and, and, and broadcast rights was and advertising, was that kind of... That was, that was tough. It was tough. And there was a lot, a lot of questions in all oh, new cities and stuff about whether, you know, they, it could succeed or not. But basically, we were lucky, and and because of the, the NBA did not expand when they should have, you know, before we were involved, they were happy to have a, a sports team in their community. So, in many cases, they they did they were very helpful to us, you know. All right, but let me ask you that maybe there's one last question about uh, the ABA. Can we talk about the ball, the actual red, white, and blue ball? Um, do you have a, a, is there any story behind its origin? And I think it's also a business concept too, right, this ball? Well, that was that was an idea that the Harlem Globetrotters started a long time ago. One of our owners was Jerry Saperstein, and he, the Harlem Globetrotters used the red, white, blue ball, and and so when we started our league, we decided we'd just continue doing that. And that's why we got started on that. But unfortunately, our legal department, and I get Don Reagan a lot about this, did not patent the darn ball. And, and one of the companies grabbed the thing and went, went with it and made a lot of money on us. <laughs> but Don... Well, you know, because he was a UCLA man, they were a little shaky at times, you know. <laughs> so, so, so it's the fact that he went to UCLA instead of USC that was the cause of uh, of the of the revenues not coming from the ABA ball, huh? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving me a business now. I don't want to get involved in that one. No, no. It, it was just one of those things that happened. And, they they had so much to do that they didn't cover the area of of the pattern, deciding and 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 making sure that nobody would use the ball at that time on on a professional level. And unfortunately, you know, we just we just made a mistake. That's all. Well, do do you remember how the the idea of a red, white, and blue ball came about in the first place? Do you remember whose idea it was? Well, yeah, it was Bill Sherman. Who came up with the idea? Was the idea to use that as a patentable and/or revenue stream, or was it just an idea, just as a promotional one, to be different than the NBA? We wanted it to be different than the NBA. That was the basic reason, and we thought the red, white, and blue would ball would would attract a lot of people, and especially the women, you know. All right. Last question about the ABA. So give us a sense of, of, of how you felt about it uh, after the first year or two. Uh, as you went around the league, you saw the excitement, you saw the maybe unevenness. Uh, did you think that you, you had uh, captured some lightning in a bottle here? Do you think you were making, do you think it was successful and or what were you worried about? Well, it was, we were at that particular time when I left, when I left the ABA, I just felt that we had good leadership and Don Reagan and Gary Davidson and George Lincoln. And I felt the league was in pretty good shape administrative wise. 
and our owners were very much involved. So we had a good group of people, and and from there it went on and on and and until the merger came about, you know. All right. Here's my last question about the ABA. When you started this and put help put it together and, and get people involved and going, did you ever envision that the ABA would last long enough and be successful enough to achieve a very significant and very valuable merger years later? Or or did you have no I mean, did you not really have any idea? Was that the I, to be honest with you? I didn't yeah. have any idea. And, and did any of the owners sort of see that as, because clearly as we, we talk about various leagues and stuff, that some owners sort of recognize or feel that by starting something in a challenger league, their ultimate goal financially is to get, you know, a, a franchise in the established league. Would you say that any of the owners kind of had that idea in concept or was it really a, well, let's just challenge and, and, and do basketball No, better? I think it was a combination of the two. I think some people went one way and some people went another way, you know, depending on their financial structure. And like, you know, in in hockey, for instance, we started that in, in team tennis. We got Bob Kraft, for instance, interested. Look at Bob. Now he owns the New England Warriors. And, and I mean, I when you hear that, Los Angeles owner got two billion dollars for his team. You, you think, wow, what, what's what? What is Bob Kraft's team worth? It's, and you know, you've got to think of the fact that it was worth five million. And he, it was like he took a chance and he made it. That's all. And some people like in business. Some make it, some don't, some some just hold on even, you know. And that's basically the same way it was with the ABA. All right, well, I want to segue into the WHA uh, in a second, but that's a good point. I, I want to bring that up. So because you have, I mean, you're, you know, one, you're probably one of the patron saints, right, of of challenger leagues and, and you know, all the leagues, and we're going to get to hopefully a bunch more uh, of your, your exploits, right? But... Do you ever feel I don't know wistful or you know do you do you ever sort of get a a, a a negative sort of feeling about sort of a lot of the things that you helped birth right indeed wound up becoming extremely uh, successful and financially uh, successful franchises and uh, uh, and valuable things D- did you you know how much did you get to participate in any of that and or if not. Uh, you know, do you ever relish some of not having some of that? To be honest with you, if I had been, had Gary and I and Don had been smarter, what we would have done is what Jerry Saperstein suggested, and that is to take a piece of every team, and we never did. If we had done that, I mean, you know, money would, would have never been a problem for any of us. But, you know, you never know, and and when we started all these leagues, you never know whether it catches on or doesn't catch on. Just like in business, you don't know if a certain business will make it and certain businesses don't make it. And, you know, it's just a gamble, and and the owners that we had were men of, of foresight, and, and what they did is they 
took a chance, and some made it, and some did not. All right, so you, you get this ABA thing up and running, and at what point do you kind of uh, start looking out outside of the ABA, and where does this idea of perhaps doing the same thing for the world of hockey come about? Well, it started, my, my thoughts became obvious when I, I was not an administrator at that time. I was, I was strictly uh, an organizer, and it is a big difference. An organizer is a guy that gets out and meets people and puts things together. That was kind of Gary Davidson's responsibility. So when the ABA, you know, got to the point where they couldn't continue to get more teams, you know, I, I started to realize that that wasn't where I was going to be in my life. And so I had to think of something else. And so when we first started the ABA, they said ABA or or hockey. So I decided to, to get involved in hockey. And I was lucky to know a couple of guys in, in Canada who really, really helped me so much to get the thing going, Bill Hunter and Benny Haskins. They were uh, they were hockey people, and they helped me so much to get the thing started, and that's how that started. So this was you and Gary again, right? Uh, kind of putting the sort of foundation together for the WHA, or was this more your idea than his? Well, it was more my idea, but he helped me, and and three of us, you know, got to be very close and. We worked together on a lot of things, and they at one time we were involved with football, which Donald Trump, our president, uh, was involved with with the World Football League at, at one time. So it was just a matter of you know where 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 do you go, you know? And in our case, in my case, it was it was hockey. So that's how. I, my emphasis was, and, and because I knew Benny Haskins and Bill Hunter from Canada, they they used to go to Palm Springs a lot in California, and that's how I got to know them, and and that's how it got all started. So you you mentioned before how few teams there were in the NBA when you decided to sort of get this ABA thing going. The NHL, right, uh, was probably even more uh, slow and lagging to kind of catch on to uh, expansion, right? I think you were kind of alluding to it earlier. I mean, up until 1969, right, the NHL only had six teams, which is hard to believe. Um, they doubled in the great expansion to 12, in, I think, in 69. But you even thought that there was a lot more that could be done in the realm of hockey, I think. Especially in the United States. Because hockey was at that time not not big in, in the United States. I mean, they played it in some colleges and stuff, but it wasn't that big in the United States. And so that's basically one of the reasons why we moved our uh, our offices and everything. We originally started in San Diego, and so we, you know, that's how it got all all moving on in the right direction. Well, it also seems around, I mean, this seems like almost from the blueprint that you discovered or figured out with the ABA, right? There was 
uh, not uh, as many job opportunities, certainly in the United States, for for professional hockey. And the salaries were low, right? I think in 1972, when you guys launched in earnest, I think the average salary was only, I think it was like $25,000, right? Which is probably the lowest of all the major sports leagues in the United States. Absolutely. And and. And at that time, it was just unfortunate, but that that's the way it was. So when we came aboard, because of Bobby Hull, Bobby Hull said, you guys give me a million dollars collectively, and I'll, I'll join you. And so we gave him his first, you know, I, I, I don't know if people sometimes don't realize, Bobby was one of the first guys to get a million dollars for playing any sport. He was the one who brought, because of his popularity and because of the fact that he brought credibility, he he was the one that had, we we got 61 players in the first year from the NHL, and that was because of Bobby. So it seems almost that the WHA was even more bold in its uh, desire to steal talent from the NHL uh, even more than the ABA did for the NBA. Yeah, you're. I think you're absolutely right. And that got people's attention for sure. And I'm sure the money, right, uh, with all the players, you know, the allure of that money. Well, everybody that that joined our league because of Bobby's credibility and because of the fact that we gave him a million dollars. You know, we 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 got some very good owners, and and we moved ahead, and and we were so lucky to you know, get the right cities at the time, and and we moved ahead, and, and we were very fortunate. All right, we're going to leave it uh, right there as we uh, kind of just got heating up there with uh, the World Hockey Association. But uh, as we uh, alluded to earlier, uh, Dennis Murphy not only uh, founded Uh, the American Basketball Association, as well as the World Hockey Association, but went on to also found uh, World Team Tennis, uh, part owner and founder of uh, the World Football League, was also the founder of Roller Hockey International, uh, and had his hand in a whole bunch of other pro uh, sports uh, exploits as well. We're going to hopefully get to some of those in uh, a couple of uh, future conversations with Dennis uh, in the uh, weeks and months ahead. So please indeed stay tuned to this here little podcast feed and uh, we will uh, look forward to sharing more conversations uh, with the uh, 93 years young Dennis Murphy on uh, future episodes. You want to find out more about Murph and uh, his history and his exploits, a couple of things uh, I can point you to, uh, both of which can be found at uh, Good Seats Still Available, our little website. Just search up this episode with Dennis Murphy and you'll find a link to the book uh, written in conjunction with uh, Richard Neil Graham, who uh, was uh, kind enough to kind of get the ball rolling and getting us uh, connected uh, to Dennis. And obviously, uh, uh, Richard was uh, our guest uh, in an early episode talking about the uh, roller hockey international interesting stories and uh, and legends of that. Uh, so you can search for that on the website at goodseatstillavailable.com. But you also find a link at, when you find this episode with uh, with Dennis Murphy. Uh, to the book that uh, Rich and Dennis uh, co-authored called Murph, the Sports Entrepreneur Man and His Leagues. That came out in uh, 2013. Uh, That's just a treasure trove of all kinds of uh, uh, reminiscences and interviews and all that kind of stuff about uh, 
the great Dennis Murphy. And there's also a uh, a hard to find documentary out there. We got to sort of figure out a way to see where and when that was released and, and where it can be found. Uh, but we'll have more information for you on that uh, at our website on this episode uh, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, that uh, documentary is called Game Changer, the Dennis Murphy story. Uh, that also came out in 2013 and it is a uh, production of Global Sports Productions and Screaming Eagle Productions. Uh, so those two items uh, are uh, out there and uh, we will uh, have links uh, conveniently for you to uh, to get both of those. Uh, at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. It's also the place you can find, uh, of course, all of our social media feeds. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us as well. And of course, on the website, you will find a link to uh, send us some email, but you can do that directly, of course, by sending that to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you will also find a link conveniently on our website, uh, to uh, subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can uh, be uh, well-informed and maybe early uh, at that as to what our uh, next episode is going to be in for the uh, coming week and uh, all kinds of other good stuff. Of course, you find all the links to all of our great uh, sponsors and stuff there too. Again, that's a good seat, still available.com. One last thanks to our friends at uh, Podfly Productions, in particular, of course, the very good doctor, the esteemed Jerry Payne, and uh, his team at Podfly Productions. Find out more about him and them at podfly.net. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode. More to come with Dennis Murphy in the coming months. And uh, we uh, look forward to sharing that and uh, lots of other great stories uh, and nooks and crannies from the world of forgotten sports here on The Great Show. Good seats still available. Thanks for listening. Take care. And until next week, uh, the ticket window is now closed. Take care. Jersey, America.
Bobby Hull story has to be one of the most exciting stories in sports. Hull is probably the most idolized player the game has ever known. After 15 record-filled years with the Chicago Blackhawks, Bobby Hull joined the World Hockey Association by signing a multi-million dollar contract that made sports history. The WHA scored another first-year coup by signing network television contracts in both the United States and Canada, something that no other major sports league had ever done before. But according to Gary Davidson, the high point of the season was the new league's acceptance by the fans. What the fans saw, they liked. They came in increasing numbers, pouring through turnstiles from Boston to Los Angeles, Alberta to Quebec. Over three million of them in all, more than twice what the critics agreed would be a good first year's attendance. Even more significance is that the attendance figures improved as the season progressed. And now with more stars coming into the league, Gary Davidson looks for that trend to continue. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, everybody. How are you? This is Tim Hanlon, uh, as announced. And of course, this is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. As the clip you just heard gives some indication, we're going to get back into the World Hockey Association, uh, the WHA. We uh, had a, a, a great uh, response to our very recent uh, conversation with uh, Curtis Walker a couple weeks back as we got into the original version of the Winnipeg Jets. And the first part of that original version, of course, uh, was domiciled uh, as the uh, oft champion uh, of the World Hockey Association, the WHA. And uh, in a bunch of uh, responses that we got to that episode, it, it kind of reminded me that uh, I thought that uh, we had also started a conversation uh, back when we uh, had our interview with uh, the great Dennis Murphy. He, the uh, founder uh, of the World Hockey Association, along with Gary Davidson, uh, the founder of the ABA, which we talked about with Dennis in that episode back in December of 2018. Uh, and obviously, Dennis went on to things like World uh, Roller Hockey International and a whole bunch of other things. But I digress. Uh, I uh, thought for sure that we had uh, perhaps done a little interview, and, and I think for, for whatever reasons, we couldn't complete it. Uh, so I did some digging. And uh, I guess we're going to sort of consider this a lost and found episode because what was uh, I thought lost is actually a good half hour and change. Uh, of a, uh, I guess, the beginnings of a part two conversation that we had with Dennis Murphy back again in December of 2018, about a year and a half ago. And uh, frankly, is spurring me, hopefully, to get in touch with him again, uh, if he's willing to uh, not only complete this conversation, but get into sort of the, uh, the latter part of his, uh, of his sports career with Roller Hockey International, et cetera. However, you're in for a treat with this little conversation, uh, relatively brief as it may be. We, we tend to do hour plus kind of episodes around here. But uh, in here, you will hear uh, a lot of uh, first-person accounts of what was going on with this thing called the World Hockey Association, getting it started up, uh, the beginning days, uh, the initial impressions, a uh, little uh, what to worry about, what what uh, Dennis and, and his friends were not worried about. Uh, and that clip that you just heard was uh, from the very first uh, World Hockey Association, I guess you call it official film, uh, featuring the uh, dulcet tones of Chicago sports broadcasting legend Brad Palmer, he uh, uh, oft remembered as uh, the professor, a uh, longtime 
WBBM News Radio uh, sports announcer, was on uh, Channel 7 here in town in Chicago for a long time, uh, was a, a longtime voice of the Chicago Bears, uh, well known for his uh, uh, studious nature and uh, uh, quick uh, knowledge of stats and 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 uh, memories and, and all kinds of uh, factoids about uh, not only the Bears, but also sports generally, hence the name, the nickname. But uh, Brad was also uh, the... I don't know if he's the de facto voice of the World Hockey Association in the early years, uh, but obviously he was narrating the official film for sure. Uh, and he was also the voice of the uh, Chicago Cougars uh, of the WHA who played in the, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know what are the charitable ways of describing the uh, the international amphitheater, uh, but uh, let's put it this way. It was probably not the uh, highest order uh, arena uh, either in Chicago or, or frankly anywhere to play hockey, uh, maybe only uh, beaten, so to speak, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, I want to call it decrepitness, but, uh, uh, minor leagueness, I guess, from where, uh, Philadelphia was playing the Blazers, uh, where I think was in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, or, or maybe that was the, the Jersey Golden Knights or whatever, but that whatever, or Camden, I, whatever, there was a, there was a facility there in, in South Jersey that either Philadelphia or one of the incarnations of, uh, the New York franchise became the Jersey Knights had to play in. But uh, I think the the International Amphitheater was probably right up there in terms of uh, being, um, uh, let's put it this way, maybe not sort of a, a top tier uh, uh, feel. However, that uh, doesn't stop us from going back into uh, that of the World Hockey Association. And uh, that clip, uh, again, uh, is a bit of an indication of uh, some of the breakthrough that uh, the 1972-73 initial season brought uh, to professional hockey. It was mixing it up, and that's what we love to focus here uh, on this show are the challenger leagues and the teams that uh, inhabited such. Uh, and there's probably no better example of that than the World Hockey Association, arguably quite successful uh, in the end of the day with uh, four franchises getting absorbed into the National Hockey League. Some call it a merger, some call it an absorption, some call it a... Uh, I don't know, a, a capitulation. I don't know what you want to call it. I, people in Cincinnati and, and Houston are probably of a certain age who probably uh, don't think necessarily that uh, that merger slash uh, amalgamation, which uh, the NHL sort of uh, went on with, uh, was necessarily fair to them. But however, that's also for another for another episode at another time. But uh, as you may know, uh, our episode with Dennis Murphy, episode number 129, you can certainly search that up if you want and Maybe listen to that one uh, in conjunction with this one. But we've done a lot of WHA uh, conversations. Uh, uh, Howard Baldwin, the uh, former owner of the uh, New England Whalers, a great guest. Uh, the late Tim Gasson, he the founder and the curator of the World Hockey Association Hall of Fame. Uh, Ed Willis, great conversation we had with him uh, about a year and a half back. Uh, Dan Bouchard had some memories, too. We talked about that with him and all kinds of other uh, people and places uh, around the WHA. John Sterling, of course, uh, the New York uh, Raiders uh, and uh, his exploits. Lots to explore uh, in retrospect with the World Hockey Association, but let's circle it back all the way to the beginning. Frankly, with the founder of such and uh, many other leagues to, uh, to boot. And this is our, if you will, our semi part two conversation with Dennis Murphy, the founder of the World Hockey Association, coming up in just a moment's time. Uh, thank you for sticking around. You're going to enjoy it. I, uh, I almost guarantee, and I virtually, I absolutely guarantee that you will enjoy it. Uh, before we get there, I want to say thank you to one of our great sponsors. And this week, it's Streaker Sports, uh, who uh, can be found at streakersports.com, just like it sounds, streakersports.com. Uh, and of course, we want to call your attention, amongst all the other sports 
stuff that they've got there, sports culture, they got all kinds of great uh, defunct league stuff. Why don't you uh, point your browser over to uh, streakersports.com and, and go to the World Hockey Association tab, and you will be greeted by a plethora, I've been trying to use that word all day, a plethora of T-shirts uh, with all the great logos. It's probably the most comprehensive, I think, that we've seen out there, including, of course, the Chicago Cougars, uh, the aforementioned uh, Houston Arrows, the ones that uh, didn't uh, make the cut. The Cincinnati Stingers also not making the cut when the uh, merger time came around, uh, but also some of the uh, original versions of uh, some of the uh, some of the teams that did. Of course, uh, in addition to that, uh, there's the New England Whalers shirt when they became uh, they obviously moved into became uh, Hartford. They're there and they're in, in a beautiful green uh, kind of textured shirt. And there's also the uh, very smart looking gray shirt uh, with the white. Uh, handsome WHA League logo. Uh, all of those shirts and more, and other sports for that matter, uh, can be found for you at streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture, they consider themselves. And of course, we have a promo code for you, and that's good seats. 15% off all of your purchases at streakersports.com, promo code good seats. So celebrate the WHA. Uh, let us uh, lift the glass uh, to. Uh, in honor of uh, our guest this week, Dennis Murphy, and why not buy a T-shirt or two or seven, at that matter, using that discount? And uh, let's uh, commemorate and remember at least a little bit of the origin story of the World Hockey Association with our semi-return visit with the great Dennis Murphy. Here's our chat we had about a year and a half ago, lost but now found. Please enjoy. So when we last were discussing, we were kind of getting out of the, uh, the ABA. And what I'd really love to be able to do is get a sense of how you uh, moved or, or considered uh, going from the ABA and, and getting that off the ground to an entirely new endeavor with pro hockey. What was going through your mind? Well, when we um, were in Miami, my owner, Tom Carney, who was a banker, wanted to sell the team. And the, so this, I'm sorry, told, this, this is the Miami Floridians of the ABA. That is correct? correct. Okay, got it. And he wanted to sell the team. So a guy from New York by the name of Ned Doyle bought the team from Tom. And so when he bought the team from Tom, he had his own people, of course. And so I decided together with my family to go back to California. So we're in California, and all of a sudden, the thought came to me, you know, well, we, we made basketball happen, so maybe we can do it in hockey, because I didn't know too much about hockey. So I had a good friend who, well, Russell Knott, who turned out to be a good friend, He uh, he suggested that you know, maybe we get a hold of one of his friends who lived in Canada. And so we did. And the guy was named Bill Hunter. H-U-N-T-E-R. Bill Hunter. And Bill used to go to Palm Springs often. So that's where he met Russell Knott. So he said, oh, sure, let, let me talk to this guy, Murphy. So... Russell set up a meeting for me and and uh, Bill Hunter, 
and Hunter was very active in, in hockey in Canada, especially with the Edmonton team. So we got talking, and he had a couple other friends, one by the name of Ben Hatskin from from Winnipeg, another one by Scotty Monroe from Calgary. So we invited him to come down to California. I got together with my partners, Jerry and Gary and, and uh, Don Reagan, and they said, yeah, let's have them come down to California. So they came to California, the three of them, and we, uh, we took them to a hockey game, and they loved it, and we talked hockey, and and Bill said, I think I'm interested in, in working with you guys. So he started working with us, and we got the thing going, and and I started traveling again and meeting a lot of people in the United States and Canada. <clears throat> we got it going again, and that's how it all started. Yeah, so all of a sudden you're becoming you're getting quite the reputation, I guess, with your now second league. But to back up for a second, uh, you mentioned uh, obviously Don Regan, but uh, two other people that uh, – for our audience, just to clarify, one, the Gary is Gary Davidson, of course, your oh, yeah. partner in crime on the ABA and other things to come. And the Jerry is, who is the Jerry? I think I know, but uh, maybe you can tell our audience who this Jerry character is. Oh, uh, did I say Jerry? I mean, Russell not. Did I men- mention him? Oh, got it. Okay, I thought you were referring to Jerry Saperstein, who I guess was not part no, of No, Jerry Saperstein turned out, as, as you realize, more and more as we go along, he's Turned out to be one of my very best friends. Matter of fact, we talk every week, so he's a very, very good friend of mine. And he's in Florida now. Yeah. So, well, I guess we'll get to Jerry in later endeavors, but he was not part of the uh, the WHA part, right? No, he wasn't part of the WHA, although he was interested in, in becoming part. I I just didn't have a spot for him at that time. Got it. Interesting. Okay, so let me let me ask you this then. So uh, it seems to me that one of the major concepts around the idea of going after the NHL with a new hockey league was this reserve clause. Is that is that a correct assessment that that, that you felt? That, that is the correct. That is the correct assessment. And Don Reagan did a wonderful, wonderful job in presenting it to the courts, and and we won we won the battle with the National Hockey League. I mean, did you think that that was solely that that was the major reason why perhaps the WHA could be successful because you knew or uh, in your group's estimation, you know, that it you was know, weak in that regard? People have asked me that, but the question that I always posed in my mind was: there was only six teams in the National Hockey League, and you know, there was a lot of interest in hockey, so there was a lot of cities that wanted teams, so it wasn't. Really, it wasn't that hard to put together. So why that's so that's an interesting point, right? The the lack, if you will, this is circa late nineteen sixties, right? I think a lot of people don't remember or or understand that there were only six teams in the NHL up until the Great Expansion in sixty nine, right? So so why do you think, uh, as you were putting all this together, why do you think the NHL was so, shall we say? behind in terms of understanding and, and expanding by that well, point. Their teams were making pretty good money in 
and they were very happy with their progress and as it was and so they they pretty well confined that to themselves you know in that area the area of, of you know keeping it small and and not expanding at that particular time were there any particular markets that you immediately your group immediately thought would be natural and perfect for well chicago was one of them even though the blackhawks were there Oh, yeah, the Blackhawks were very successful, but because of their success, we thought we'd be, we'd be able to succeed. And we, you know, we, we did because of one guy, and that guy was, of course, Bobby Hall. Well, we'll get to Hull in a second, but I, I guess what I, I'm really trying to get into here is how you thought the markets, how you thought through the markets, right? Because something like Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, right, those were all established NHL, right, cities. But then there was also this these other cities that didn't have hockey. So it seemed like you were trying to kind of satisfy both, right? Markets that were big that could support another team, as well as brand new markets that would love to have had professional hockey. Well, one of the biggest problems we had, okay, I and I, I blame myself for this, is I, you know, expansion was the big thing with us, so... I wanted to have as many teams as I could, and I think that was a mistake on my part. I should have, you know, kept it to 12 or 24 or 16 or whatever, but not go to the to the tune that I was, you know, trying to establish all over the country and all over the world. It wasn't it wasn't the time for that, and I should not have done that, and that was my mistake. But but it did seem to me that that it was sort of predicated. It almost felt like for you to be considered legitimate and professional that you needed not all you needed teams that were sort of in the major markets that could perhaps support a competing team in a WHA, but also the markets that were just dying, frankly, for an a, a hockey franchise altogether, like a Birmingham or a a Quebec or a Houston. I think that's a pretty pretty good point. Uh, my thought were, of course, to be honest, to expand as quick as we can, and, and to be honest again, to make as much money as I could, you know. So that, you know, we were only charging at that time 25000 which was a very small amount, but at that time it was a pretty good amount. So we, you know, we were, we were both greedy and secondly, not very smart. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that part. I, I you know, I, I understand the idea of a business enterprise, right? But I think it was is it not only smart but prescient, right? In that, I mean, you look back through history, you know, you know, circa 1969, it was only then that the NHL was adding some teams. But you guys were smart enough to recognize that hockey had some issues, some challenges, right? The reserve clause being one, the relative well, lack I of franchises. I, I, the, the reserve clause was a great job on the part of my partner, Don Reagan. He did a great job legally. And because of that, we were able to to make a breakthrough. And that, I think National Hockey League thought they would win that case. And they, they made a mistake, just like we all do. But they made a mistake in thinking that the courts would, you know, go with them. And they did not. They went with us. So that was our luck. But I, I guess that also, though, 
really stirred up a, a, a teapot of dissatisfaction by the players, not only in Oh, terms yeah. Well, the players were as normal at that time. <clears throat> they were not paid very much. And, of course, with us coming into the scene, their salaries increased, you know, immensely. So we were uh, uh, dreamed to them, really, because we helped them get what they should have gotten in the first place. So let me talk about that then. So, so how do you? What is the what is the thinking as you get ready to find these teams and franchises and owners about players? What is your strategy? Right. Obviously, we can talk about the Bobby Hall thing, right? Which was part of a a bigger strategy. Was it to literally raid some big players, or was it to find? a whole sort of host of other players that just didn't have the opportunity to play professionally and give them a working wage. What was the strategy for players? I think it was both, both, both thought this course. We were very fortunate to get, as I said, many times before Bobby Hill, Bobby brought credibility to his league. And he said to Don and myself and, and Gary, he said, if you guys come up with a million dollars up front and the check doesn't bounce, we'll be very, very happy to join you guys. And not only did he join us, he brought 61 players with him from the National Hockey League because their salaries were much less than ours at that particular time. Anything in particular that you remember around sort of the the chase for 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 Bobby Hull, like like why him and 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 how sort of the negotiations occurred? Bobby it was just a huge event. Bobby was not only a great player; he was a man of great, tremendous extension, dedication, and a man who the players all had a lot of respect for. And when he made the move. I think, in my in my judgment, they felt comfortable about the fact that our league was going to make it. So that's what that's what they did on the whole. What was it? Was he just was he was Hull was Hull joking when he said he would only play for the WHA for a million dollars? I mean, I my sense is that there was a bit of a like that'll never happen, and then surprisingly, or maybe this was part of the PR strategy, a million dollars showed up, if you will, to actually be legit in terms of being an offer. Well, it was a legitimate offer, and that's what he wanted. He wanted us not to talk about it. He wanted us to show us the green. So (laughs) we did it, and that, I think, was the big breaking point. Let me ask you about the Jets and their offer, right? How much of that offer for him for Hull was a collective effort on the league and perhaps was it a shared uh, 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 expense, right, where Winnipeg wasn't the only ones shelling out that kind of money? Was it a collective effort as much as it was the Winnipeg Jets' effort? It was an absolute collective effort. Okay. Everybody pitched in. And uh, some pitched in higher than others, but they they realized that – that was a big breaking point, and so they all pitched in, and that was not hard to do. It was the guys just came up with it. Doesn't that, though, um, 
I, I'm surprised though because and and we've gone back and forth in in our previous episodes about sort of central ownership versus a franchise model, right? And you just described a franchise model as kind of the obviously for the ABA and for the WHA and frankly most of your sports endeavors were franchise oriented. Yet here you're talking about something that's sort of for the betterment of the league. How do you how do you balance that where franchise owners kind of want to do their own thing and and make their own way and yet you 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 want to get them to collectively do something like getting Bobby Hull? Well, I think our ownership, the guys that we picked, were men who had successful businesses, and they realized more than ever that you needed something to to go by. And Bobby Hull was our answer. And he turned out to be, and then from him, of course, we got Gordy Howe, and then we got Wayne Gretzky. I mean, you couldn't get three better names than those three in hockey. So I think I think our ownership, we had a good group of owners, and they all realized, and they were very, most of them were very successful in their businesses, and they they felt that this was the way to go, and that's that's what Gary and I and Don did. We went that way with them, and and thank goodness we did because Bobby was that kind of a person. What was the um, what was the reaction of the NHL uh, before Bobby Hull was announced? That is, the WHA was being formed, and perhaps what was the reaction of the the NHL after his? Oh, they 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 really from the beginning they didn't think we had a chance. And to be frank frank with you, at, at the beginning I didn't know whether we did or not. And thank goodness we had the right type of owners. And Gary and, and Don, and we made the right decisions. So, is it fair to say that the NHL kind of didn't give you much credit uh, at the early part, and that was to their detriment and your uh, early success in terms of getting attention and players? Well, we found out later that there were other people who had tried to start leagues too, and they didn't do it. So, I think the National Hockey League just felt like you did, like we did about baseball, that they were, they were too strong. And nobody would tangle with them. And we made up our mind that that was not the case, and so we went forward and did it. But we were we were lucky. We had the right ownership, and, and we had the right right people join, join us from the players' level. Anything you remember from... The early years, the early days of, of actual getting up and running and playing uh, the stadiums, right? Seems like there were some interesting challenges there. And and the play, right, which was high quality, relatively high quality, surprising. But it wasn't smooth, was it, these early months and years? Well, we made we made a lot of mistakes. We, we picked some people that we should not have picked. And unfortunately, those people caused us some problems because a lot of people thought, you know, here they go again. They're starting the league and they're going to fall on their face. But after a few years, you know, it was discussed that the best thing to do is to merge. And we made the right decision there, too. We were just lucky we made the right decisions. I mean, to make decisions on the basis of 
whether you can make things happen or not. And we were lucky. We were we were able to do it. Any um, any teams or markets or owners that uh, you thought did uh, or or were really really good and strong, and and any others that you thought were surprisingly not so good? I mean, I there's a ton of examples, right? I especially on the latter, right? I think about New York, right? The New York, you know, owners, right? when you start off a league, you never know, and so we never knew that. Either way, we didn't know whether the guys were giving us a bunch of baloney or with their, you know, with their statements and all that stuff, or they were right. We were lucky. We we picked more winners than losers. That's all. At uh, at what point did um, did the idea of uh, a merger sort of come into play in your ownership conversations? Right. I mean, I, I'm. Oh I'm, yeah, we we. That was a. I really think some of the guys had that as their goal, and that's what happened. We did merge with the with both both leagues, and and we the four teams in the in the ABA, and all all together six in the NBA and NHL. So we were just you know, Tim was just like everything else in life take a chance and some you win some you lose and we were lucky we won um let me ask you this question too about about that merger so at what point right did uh the nhl actually come to a conversation with you right because after having ignored you or uh not sort of given you the time of day in the early part in the early going at what i mean was this the nhl all of a sudden, I really, I really think, and I want to give credit. I really think it was Red Arbach. Red was so much against us at the beginning, but when he saw that we were serious and we were doing so well, he was, I think, the leading source of the National Hockey League that pushed for a merger. Red turned out to be a real good guy, and and I, I really respected him tremendously. When did you know that the WHA sort of had made it? I mean, uh, you know, you, you clearly had gotten some attention, you know, with the the, the Russians coming to uh, to play the players. The you were getting a lot of attention in markets that didn't have NHL. When when did you kind of think you you were really you had really made some impact on hockey? Was it? It wasn't early on, was it? We we knew we had good teams, and we knew that if we we played the National Hockey League. We'd give them a good battle, uh, and that turned out to be correct. The Edmonton Oilers won four out of five Stanley Cups after they joined the NHL on the merger. And some of the guys wanted a merger, and some of the guys did not in our group. And the National Hockey League and us agreed that four, five of our teams would go over with them, and and that's what happened. Do you remember anything about which teams, like how the selection of the teams that were going to be merged occurred? Because I'm sure there were a few hurt feelings by some that were, well, taken, like Cincinnati. Of course, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Calgary, uh, Quebec City were, you know, were teams that that were natural. They wanted to go into the National Hockey League. It was something that was always in their mind and this we were we were the source and so 
that was that was what made it happen as far as the merger is concerned. The Canadians especially, and they they pushed real hard for it, and they was they were right, and thank goodness they were, because Edmonton, Winnipeg, and all the other teams that did very well with, with, with the National Hockey League. As did Hartford, right, which was the only one from the United States that sort of made it. I, I guess my question is, I, my understanding is, man, maybe you remember the specifics, maybe you don't, um, that uh, there were, kind of, I, there were, from what I understand, two other teams that were kind of in the mix that kind of got shut out, that being Birmingham and Cincinnati. Um, anything? Yeah, they wanted teams badly, and they had the financial backing. But, you know, the National Hockey League, they they were in control, really, basically, of, of the merger because we were asking them to go in with them. If it had been the other way, maybe we would have been the same way, but that's what happened. We went in with them. Okay, what what about the legacy of the WHA? There were there were a bunch of rules, new rule changes, and um, and and obviously some quality players too. Uh, is there anything that uh, stands out in your mind as as the WHA sort of flavor of hockey being different than the NHL and, and its legacy? I, I, like overtime, I think was a WHA. That was our right? idea, anyway. Oh yeah, we had you know we had good rules. They had good rules, and we just combined the two and and went from there. But basically, to be honest with you, I had very little to do with after they got together on the merger. So I didn't, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time in that area because at that particular time, I was also working with Team Tennis. So I was pretty busy. And so I didn't spend the time on the merger. But the guys who did, did a good job, I thought, and I hope they're doing a good job today, and I think they are. So let's just hope that things keep going well for everybody in hockey. All right. Well, unfortunately, we uh, have to leave it there. And it's all coming back to me now. Uh, you know, this is a year and a half ago. So, uh, you know, uh, shoot me for forgetting. But um, I believe we uh, had set up or at least I had thought we had set up the time to uh, go deep into the WHA like we did with our uh, earlier episode with the uh, uh, American Basketball Association. But uh, I think Dennis had gotten the time wrong and he had uh, some other appointment to go to. Uh, and he uh, pr- uh, profusely apologized that uh, at the end of this clip. I saved you from that. Uh, and uh, I uh, just uh, foolishly have not followed up since because I just uh, kept going on with other uh, episodes and whatnot. And we had a great response to the ABA episode. Uh, but I uh, probably do owe Dennis another call so we can hopefully maybe go a little bit uh, deeper into the WHA story. And frankly, some of his uh, other exploits. He was involved in the World Team Tennis thing. We're going to get into that in a couple of weeks uh, with a couple of guests. Finally, luckily. Uh, and uh, certainly Roller Hockey International, which we've uh, had a cup of coffee uh, with with our pal uh, Richard Neil Graham. Uh, and we have another episode uh, probably featuring a very special guest uh, going to be related to that as well. So, uh, Dennis, if you're listening, uh, uh, we will uh, probably try to give you a buzz uh, sometime in the weeks ahead. And maybe we can uh, sort of complete the circle of all of your Challenger League goodness that uh, we uh, bow reverentially. Uh, in your general direction, 
uh, in thanks uh, to sports fans or from sports fans all over the place. Uh, without pioneers like you and your uh, your uh, cohort in crime, Gary Davidson, and and, and a whole bunch of uh, of others, uh, we I don't think would have such a um, uh, an interesting and colorful history to uh, to go back into each and every week here on this show, uh, as well as uh, the. Uh, the current, uh, uh, you know, uh, amazingness of, of pro sports, if and when it comes back into its full uh, glory, uh, a lot of the uh, pioneering efforts uh, and uh, uh, vanguards of uh, of those things uh, that we enjoy today came from a lot of your innovations back in the day. All right. We uh, want to, before we run, thank you for not only listening, but uh, for following us on social media. We're at... Uh, all kinds of different places. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, there is a Facebook page devoted to us. So just search us up there. Uh, and uh, if you forget all of that and just want more, all the various episodes that you just may have missed, why don't you uh, point your browser, whatever version of uh, Firefox or uh, Microsoft Edge or Chrome, whatever you use these days, to goodseatsstillavailable.com. Yep, that's our website. Every single stinking episode, including this little mini lost and found, uh, will be found literally and figuratively on that site. Uh, of course, why not uh, you make your life a lot easier by just simply subscribing to wherever you get your podcasts. That's the easier thing to do, for God's sakes. Uh, but either way, please continue to come and enjoy uh, our little uh, drizzle of content uh, that we throw out each and every week to you in our silly little genre of forgotten sports. We uh, appreciate your passion, your uh, your interest, your uh, proverbial cards and letters. You want to send us some email? Go ahead. At, uh, we're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, oh, oh, yeah, don't forget on the website, just if you search for it, I need to call it out a little bit more easily. But there is a little link in there if you just search around for it to uh, get onto our weekly email newsletter. Uh, just uh, give us your uh, your name and your email address, and uh, we will not share it with anybody. No spam, we promise. Uh, but we will send you each and every week a little head start to uh, what uh, will be uh, the topic. Do I don't know? It's uh, whatever the French word is for week, because uh, we do it every week, and we'd like to send a little uh, early advance notice to our friends uh, to be in the know. Just sign up for that uh, email newsletter on the website. Uh, one last bit of uh, news, let's uh, say, th- not news, but uh, thanks, kudos, if you will, to uh, our pal Jerry Payne down in Metro Atlanta, who is uh, safely uh, distancing uh, from um, uh, all that uh, might uh, ill him and, and his uh, his colleagues down there. He's doing all the right things and uh, including, of course, uh, putting all of our uh, editing pieces together for this episode and all of our episodes to date. Uh, and we appreciate his efforts as always. It's uh, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. And uh, this week, once again, he has uh, risen to the call. We appreciate him. We appreciate you. And uh, I thank you uh, tremendously for listening. And uh, let's uh, leave you again with, uh, we always look for an excuse for, you know, great uh, theme songs and, and great audio. And uh, although we've played it before, why the hell won't we play it again? Because it's probably the best and maybe the only that I know of. If you know of any others, please let me know. Uh, the theme song, a theme song, the best theme song, maybe the only theme song of the WHA's uh, motley crew of teams. And that, of course, being the New England and then Hartford Whalers. Here it is. It's the song you know, you love, you can't live without it. It's the uh, Brass Bonanza. Here it comes. Take care, everybody. See you next time.